Ian White, um, and I'm the uh, rather new uh, <coughs> Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bath with a lot to learn. Um, and today I'm sure I will learn a very great deal. I may also thank in particular a number of people for attending today. First of all, Pam Chesters, who is the new uh, Chair of Council of the University of Bath, and in many ways will be much more expert speaking here in, uh, than me today. Uh, she has had a very successful career in industry, but then was, that has been followed uh, by a position as being chair of the NHS Trust, uh, the English Church's Housing Group and Action for Children, in addition to being a member of the Camden Racial Equality Council, the London Poverty Commission and the London Skills and Employment Board. Thank you so much for Pam already for all your contributing to the university. Uh, but it is, of course, a particular honour uh, for the university uh, that the uh, all-party parliamentary group have allowed us, and chosen us indeed, uh, to host this meeting uh, for the consideration of the interim report, Healing the Generational Divide. Uh, for me, this is a very special activity and a very special subject. And can I therefore thank so much for our Bath Minister Member of Parliament, Vera Hobhouse, the Chair of the IPGBG, Chilka Amna, and to all our speakers uh, for coming today. Uh, I'm delighted, of course, that the University of Bath itself is represented um, uh, through, for example, the Interdisciplinary Research Project, which is led by Professor Julie Barnett on loneliness in the digital age, this linking into many of the themes of the APPG's interim report. Uh, the University of Bath is particularly pleased to associate itself with these topics because whilst its research always seeks to be rigorous, equally it seeks to apply that research into real activities, not simply to add commentary, but hopefully to provide evidence which allows new policy to be formed, that of course being the hallmark of the IPR itself. And an age when, of course, uh, our culture seems so good at cultivating loneliness. Uh, topics such as this are at the heart of ensuring the happiness and well-being of all generations. I've been informed that this interim report sets out the beginnings of a framework through which national, regional and local government might work together to foster stronger connections between generations. And we really look forward to continuing to see how this develops through the work of the APPG as it seeks to heal the intergenerational divide. And I do hope that the university can support this activity in any way possible going forward. In addition, of course, aware that many of these issues need to be addressed as much in the local and regional area as in the wider national and indeed international areas, I am very keen to learn more from those involved in the local community as how we can work together better. I'd therefore now like formally to welcome Anthony Hawkins of the Strategy and Business Development Director at The Challenge, the UK's leading charity for building more integrated society, to now speak. Thank you very much. Great. 
Thank you very much. Um, good morning, everyone, and thanks, everyone, for coming along this morning. And welcome to the launch of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Social Integrations, Healing the Generational Divide report. I'm going to go to APPG from here on in. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, my name's Anthony Hawkins. I'm the Strategy and Business Development Director of The Challenge. And The Challenge is uh, the UK's leading charity for building a more integrated society. And we're very proud um, to provide the Secretariat for the APPG on social integration. In addition to the programmes we deliver across the country, which include the National Citizen Service um, and our youth volunteering programme, Head Start, uh, we relish our role supporting the APPG's pioneering work, um, developing and promoting policies that bring people together from different backgrounds. And we're very excited to be here today uh, to launch this interim report on bridging generational divides. Now, before we get underway with the launch of this report and discuss some of its findings and recommendations, I want to say a huge thank you to the University of Bath's Institute for Policy and Research for uh, hosting us today and doing so much to help us to organise this event. We're very much looking forward to hearing from Dr Matt Dixon of the Institute a little later on and hearing some more uh, about the fascinating Loneliness in the Digital Age project that they're running at the moment. Um, one of the key features of the APPG's interim report um, is how digital technology can cause, on the one hand, uh, feelings of disconnect disconnection and loneliness, um, but also provide some of the tools that help us come together and connect, um, including potentially between different generations. Um, and in the context of Brexit and some of the major social divides that we've seen open up in our society, the APPG's report and on this topic has never been more relevant or urgent. Um, I'm delighted to say uh, that with us today to launch the report is Chukwuemuna MP, who's been the APPG's chair since its founding in 2016. And Chuka has been absolutely pivotal both to the establishment of the APPG and its ongoing work. We're enormously grateful for his commitment to the cause of social integration. I don't think we could hope for a more eloquent advocate on this subject. Um, since 2016, the APPG has conducted first an inquiry on the integration of immigrants, uh, and that resulted in the publication of its Integration Not Demonization Report in 2017. Since then, we've switched tracks um, and we've been carrying out a lot of research on intergenerational connections. And that's part of the inquiry that's produced this interim report uh, today and was selected by the APPG really as a, a key focus um, for bringing people together across society over the next few years. Um, Chuka has been a fantastic chair over the whole period and we're looking forward to continuing to support the remainder of this APPG on bridging age divides as we seek to reunite our country and increase the positive outcomes that can come from more closer connections with people between people of different generations. I'm also delighted that we're here in the Bath constituency of Vera Hoghouse MP who has made major contributions to the work of the APPG throughout um, and in this intergenerational inquiry particularly. And we're looking forward to hearing from Vera later on, later on in this event 
about both some of the report's key recommendations and the local context here in Bath, where there are a number of organisations leading the charge on this issue. One of these is Good Gym, um, which brings together younger and older people from across the country, including in Bath, by combining getting fit with doing good. And we're really pleased to have um, Good Gym's founder, Ivo Gormley, with us this morning to join a panel discussion in the second half of the event on intergenerational connection. Alongside Ivo will be Rachel Dutton, who is head of research at the Bristol-based charities, the St. Monica Trust. Uh, they support older people and have been promoting intergenerational connections for a number of years now, including by hosting the first series of, I'm just going to get the name of the show right, the hugely popular show, Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds, which many of you may have seen, and I guess may well still be available on, uh, on Channel 4's online platform if you haven't. So we're really looking forward to a lively and thought-provoking discussion uh, today involving all of you in the audience. But before we get stuck into that, I think it's time to hand over to Chuka to launch this report and tell us more about what the APPG has found in its inquiry so far. Please welcome Chuka Amuna, MP. Thanks very much. Yes, Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, good morning, everyone. And um, it's fantastic to be here in uh, Bath. What a beautiful city. I don't think I've been uh, for a while. And when we were thinking about where we could launch this interim report, um, we don't have a university in Streatham and some of the features that you have here. So uh, coming to Bath, Vera's patch, uh, it seemed the natural um, choice. And so it's fantastic to be here. Thank you very much for hosting us. And thank you to all of you um, for coming to the launch um, this morning. Um, one of the things that I like most about being in an APPG, and it seems um, a while ago since we, we formed it, is that you actually get to work cross-party and uh, I'm not the biggest tribalist, um, so much so that actually I left one party and, and ended up being part of founding another. Um, but I think tribalism is overrated, and actually you can often achieve far more when you work cross-party on things that you agree with. And if we're incapable of doing something like that in the House of Commons, then there is no way we're going to be able to heal this incredibly divided country um, of ours. Uh, and I think actually one of the best aspects of the work of the House of Commons is that cross-party working you see in select committees and APPGs. And APPGs have an advantage over select committees because it isn't such a formal body and you are not so hemmed in by mirroring the work of one department. And of course, if you look at the issue that we explore in this interim report, it actually crosses over the activities of a number of different departments, which is why we're in a much better position to look at the issues raised in this report than a select committee would be, because they're quite circumscribed by the department that they're, that they're shadowing. Now, we chose to focus on this issue in particular, this uh, intergenerational divide, because of our grave concern about the deep political divisions that seem to have emerged between different generations in the country. That was the motive, if you like, the starting point which inspired us holding this inquiry. Obviously, we saw 
the divisions very clearly in the 2016 Brexit referendum, which we're still, of course, dealing with, and then again in the 2017 general election. Uh, according to Ipsos, um, their social research institute, uh, the voting patterns in that 2017 general election showed the greatest divisions between age groups they've ever recorded, ever recorded. And alongside this, we also had a feeling that although the idea of social integration seems more important now than it has ever been, and I believe it's going to become an even more prominent part of our discussion as we think about the future direction of our society, the specific question of these intergenerational divides isn't one that has until now really received the attention that it deserves. In the course of the inquiry, we're aiming to change that. It's why we decided to do this inquiry. And what we've found so far has underlined the importance of looking into this area. Because the evidence that we have seen um, has provided us both with real cause for concern as to the current state of affairs, but also we've some, seen some really inspiring examples of what we might be able to do to change things and bring people together. Now, our concern over the extent of age-based divisions has been further underlined by evidence which suggests that the young and the old are not only displaying polarised outlets, polarised attitudes, but they are increasingly in danger of actually physically, tangibly leading quite separate lives without that regular interconnection with one another. Take these um, statistics for instance. For the typical child in our largest cities, just 5% of the people in their immediate neighbourhood are over 65. Fine. Or well, not fine. Because in 1991, that figure was 15%. Between 1981 and 2011, three quarters of the increase in 45 to 64 year olds, 45 to 64 year olds, and over 65s across the country took place in villages and small and medium sized towns. And by contrast, 80% of the growth in 25 to 44 year olds occurred in large towns and core cities. So what we appear to be seeing is that not only has the extended family become increasingly geographically separated since the mid-20th century, but that the impact of this on intergenerational connection appears to have been exacerbated in recent decades by increasing residential segregation of young and old. However, as I said, we've also found real inspiration through hearing from and visiting a range of civic society organisations who are fighting back against the age divide and finding new and innovative ways of bringing different ages together to form meaning, meaningful and lasting interactions and connections. Groups, some of whom you'll hear from today, like Good Gym, who are active in Bath and whose founder, Ivor, who you're going to hear from in a bit, is with us. Good Gym encourages young people to combine getting fit um, with connecting with older people in their communities. So, for example, by running to the home of an older citizen uh, who, obviously, because you need to visit them, acts as an incentive to go out and do your run when maybe you think, maybe I'll go to the pub. Uh, but 
in a way, the older person you're visiting, although they're not doing the running, acts as your buddy and your coach and gives you that impetus to keep fit. Uh, another example was what we saw in Manchester, the care family who we visited in Manchester create community networks of young professionals and older neighbours and they get them to come together to socialise and support one another. And you know, often the young professionals moving into an area, their place of residence is just that, but they don't often interact with their neighbours because they might go and socialise in the centre of town. And through what the CARES family is doing, it's giving people something to do and a way of being involved in their local community. We've seen numerous examples of pioneers like this who are pointing the way to how we can create a better future in which all ages live much more interconnected lives uh, and lives and examples which we can draw on, understand and learn from uh, uh, and use to roll out across the country to bring people together. And in the current context in which we find ourselves, I don't think we can afford, if you like, to continue to just adopt this laissez-faire attitude to this uh, issue and think of these things as nice to have. The growing generation gap we've seen is one of a number of divides which are threatening to fundamentally undermine the health and cohesion of our society, of this country. Polling we um, have undertaken for the launch of this report confirms this, and we're grateful to Opinion for helping us with this. Most British people agree that Brexit has further widened the age gap between older people and younger people. Um, only 11% of people disagree with that. Most people in Britain believe that older people got a better deal when they were young than today's younger generation. But then most older people, unfortunately, think that younger people are less hardworking than older generations were, and they're more inclined to moan. So, while some of you might be nodding, I don't know, but um, while civil society may be leading the way, rising to a challenge of this magnitude is also going to require political leadership at both a national and a local level. But crucially, it seems clear that it will also require new types of leadership and new ways of thinking that will push all of us outside of our comfort zone and our typical ways of thinking. Because this is not just about spending more money, although that is of course going to be necessary, or about public solutions versus private solutions. As I think our report shows, tackling this age divide requires, as much as anything, fundamentally new ways of thinking about how we deliver services and for whom new ways of thinking about how spaces and private spaces and how and public spaces and private spaces and how both can build uh, or prevent meaningful connections between people. And it's also going to require present and future technologies that aid the building of these connections rather than expanding the divides which technology can do. Now, this is a massive challenge for all of us. It is huge one that we are just beginning to answer today, but we hope that this report makes a significant step forward. So I'm now going to hand over to Vera, um, the queen of the banner, um, who has been a huge supporter and very active member of the APPG to talk in more detail about some of the key ideas in this report and what they mean to her. And I'll return to chair 
the panel that we're going to have after the speeches. Over to you, Vera. Good morning, everybody. And I cannot tell you how delighted I am that we are launching this report here today um, in my city of Bath, but especially in the university. And I would say um, uh, the university in the city of Bath, is, it shows a little bit about this sort of age divide. So the um, city of Bath itself and the reputation we have is as, as a historic city. Um, but the university is actually relatively young. Um, and I think it injects that young life into a very historic city where often our reputation is of being a bit sort of chocolate box and, and old and Jane Austen. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that we can actually bring these two things together and the partnership that hopefully um, the university is already building but will um, build with me, but, but uh, the issues that the council also has in, in tackling a lot of the issues, the modern issues that, 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 that face us. So I'm, I'm really delighted. Um, to, to launch this here um, in this space, and I'm looking forward for working um, with the university together on this issue and many others. Um, thank you, uh, Chuka, for um, uh, being so very encouraging about my role on the APPG. Um, I have to say, when I first became an MP in 2017, people said, I don't do too many APPGs. You know, you've got lots of other stuff to do, and APPGs are nice things, and there's probably an APPG on toothpaste, and so take it easy. But there was a one APPG I absolutely wanted to do, and this is um, the APPG um, uh, uh, on, on social integration. And I was also particularly um, uh, uh, chuffed, really, that um, the subject that we picked, um, intergenerational divides, was picked as what we wanted to, to look into. And I, um, I felt it was a very appropriate uh, uh, subject to pick. Uh, as local councillor that I have been for, for many years, I, I work a lot in grassroots and communities, and I felt that, that, that often um, that young and old people don't communicate good. Um, and, and, and yet, um, in the end, politics is about people, and we are all people. Um, and sometimes young people um, possibly forget that old people are also just people and were young, and the other way around, um, that, that, that old people have forgotten um, that there were young people once um, and the way they felt. Um, and, and, and absolutely, um, we need to make sure that we treat all of us as people, not just across um, the intergenerational divide, but create respect and understanding for each other, and that is really what is big, are the biggest of our jobs as, as politicians. So in Bath, um, uh, we, I'm very proud to say that we are leading the way in many ways. We are a very vibrant city which attracts people of all ages. We were recently voted the best city in which to raise a family. We have thousands of university students and a large population of older people. And we do have wonderful examples of how we are tackling the divide between the generations in our city which I will now share with you. We can be a role model for our communities. But just before um, I, um, I come into that, I just also want to say a few words on Brexit, which has uh, consumed our country and our politics for um, almost three years, but actually leading into it, we already had the subjects that came out um, in the Brexit um, debates. Um, uh, and we actually discussed that at length um, in, in our APPG, how um, Brexit has divided our communities, but actually shown something that was already there. It has just exacerbated um, the divisions that were there. And um, the divide um, of Brexit is about other divides as well. There are about um, 
um, divides of inequalities that our society hasn't actually addressed appropriately in all those years leading up to Brexit. And it will be, now that we, we have had Brexit or we are still in Brexit, uh, it will be even more difficult really um, to, to address all these issues of inequalities, but we need to urgently do that. So I, I thank you all again for being here today because we all can work together at healing these divides. Too many people felt that they weren't listened to. Sometimes it can seem that we have lost the ability to have a constructive dialogue um, and bring people from different groups together. Brexit has sucked all of our government's energy out of um, what we are doing, um, so um, the underlying issues are now even further neglected. So when we talk about housing, for example, nothing is really being done. If we, if we look at, at wage inequalities, nothing is really being done to look at the underlying issues of our divided communities. Um, but let's go to the positive things and what we are doing here in Bath. Um, in Bath, we have a highly engaged local population um, and who has taken part in many cross-generational groups. Our cultural groups, such as book groups, lecture series, or mu musical societies, our charities, 200 of whom who have come together under the umbrella of the Bath and Northeast Somerset Third Sector, or Baines 3G. Our campaigning groups, Bath is a real hotbed of activism. And when people say to me, oh, Bath, beautiful city, I say I love to be um, the MP for Bath and I am so honored to be the MP of, uh, for Bath because of its people and because of that p particular engagement in, in third sector organizations, but really a lot of charitable work, but also a lot of political activism, um, which really makes it a real pleasure to represent this city. Um, and we have, um, we've seen this, we have got Bath for Europe, and we have got um, the big, um, uh, many people who came out into the streets um, to fight for our libraries, disarmament, extinction, extinction rebellion, and absolutely Bath, um, Bath for Europe. So many of our old, um, older residents have strongly objected actually for voting against Brexit. And in fact, um, I find the, the, the activists um, really in, in Bath for Europe are more my age and I'm not young anymore. Um, our generation has actually um, been a very active campaigning generation and often um, the young people um, seem to um, overlook that or they actually campaign in different ways. And I think as the older generation, we, we also need to see that. We say, oh, I'm a, I've become a marcher. I really march in the streets now and I'm nearly 60. And a lot of my friends are sim similar age. Young people do something slightly differently. They, they campaign online now. And again, I think um, we have to just understand that we do things slightly differently, but that doesn't actually mean a different way of, of motivation or engagement. Also, a number of older residents have told me that before voting in the referendum, they consulted with their children and their grandchildren because they wanted to do what is best for the younger generation. One of the recommendations of the report that we are launching today is that nurseries, schools and care homes should join up more. Bridgemead, I'm one of the patrons at Bridgemead actually, is one of our care homes in Bath that has a partnership with Whitcomb Primary School and a toddler playgroup. The care home residents read to the children and they paint and create art together. They share stories and everyone involved loves these activities. I want to shine a spotlight on the great work being done by our local HUK organization. They have teamed up with schools to bring pupils together with older residents and with Spa, Bath Spa University and the University of Bath to create very successful activities. For example, Chloe Chan, a pharmacy student at this university, received the Mayor's Award for volunteering. 
She supported Aged UK and was a student ambassador for the Student Union Dementia Activity. But there is more to be done. Only 5% of Aged UK's regular volunteers are under the age of 30. The charity needs more um, resources to help attract younger volunteers. And again, if the university could help with that, we already have these activities in place and, 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 and promote that really um, through the university would be a wonderful thing to go forward. In my experience, older generations have an amazing contribution to make by sharing their wisdom and experience with younger people. And in the past, before we could Google everything, this was how knowledge was handed down. Housing is something that um, people might know I'm very passionate about. I've already um, mentioned um, uh, 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 that we have done far too little about this. It is um, the obvious um, that we have a housing crisis in this country, and actually Bath is very much part of that. For many young people, it is impossible to live in Bath, and yet you, the young people need to come um, and, and, and work in the jobs that we offer in the hospitality sector, um, in, uh, in, in, in cares homes, in, uh, um, in the hospitals, and yet they cannot afford to live here. So um, these are the, the problems that we as a city of Bath directly face. As we plan housing, we need to bring different age groups together, not keep them apart. And I think, um, uh, Chuka, you referred to the fact that actually <coughs> we now have this sort of um, amazing isolation which we looked at at the, at the APPG, that um, uh, uh, we seem to create um, family um, ghettos and older people ghettos and student ghettos. And, and that is very, very unhelpful for, the, for, for, for our society. So in a city like Bath, with both a large population of older people and a big student population, we have got some exciting possibilities to do this. In Bath, Guild Living has just unveiled plans for a 4.5-acre development on the home base site, where it will offer a unique approach to later living, bringing together older and younger people. The scheme, which will have almost 300 apartments, represents a step forward tackling the chronic undersupply of later living accommodation within Bath. It will include a restaurant, gym and pool, children's nursery and retail spaces, all of which will be open to the local community. And our report calls for such schemes as this, with local authorities working closely with the private sector to encourage the expansion of intergenerational housing initiatives. I know that Guild Living designed their scheme based on academic research from Professor Malcolm Johnson based right here at the University of Bath. And again, a very good example how the city and the university can work together. In our report, we reference Germany as a country in which home sharing schemes, younger people living with older for discounted rent in exchange for providing support are very well established. This is a starting point to catch up um, in this country as well and should be encouraged. It would be also very positive if universities started considering this setup in accommodation mixed for their students. We can be very creative with other solutions as well. Nurseries, schools and care homes should join up like Bridgemead and um, co-locating with services on site where possible. We could um, have a take your headphones off day, for example. Uh, I've just got this around my neck and I thought it looked very good with my necklace, didn't it? Um, but yeah, there, 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 there are many things where, where just if we think as people, we can make such a big difference. Um, to sum up, building stronger intergenerational connections is both a personal and a political issue. It will enhance everybody's well-being and help tackle every, everybody's um, personal challenges, such as loneliness. And not old people are lonely. In fact, many, many young people are lonely. 
Sometimes when speaking to constituents about a housing issue, me or my team will can uncover very sad cases of isolation amongst the elderly, but young people are just as isolated as well. We need to become much more compassionate with each other. Um, and this is really the big debate. How are we creating compassionate societies? So I'm looking forward um, to the discussion we are going to have um, later on today. And thank you very much again for being here today. Thank you, Vera. Uh, first of all, can I just add a uh, welcome uh, to the Vice-Chancellor's words. Here at the Institute for Policy Research, I'm uh, Matt Dixon from the Institute for Policy Research. Uh, we're delighted to be hosting the launch of this very important report from the APPG on social integration. Uh, and before I come on to talk about some of the research we've been involved in in the Loneliness in the Digital Age project, I thought I would just say a couple of words about the Institute for Policy Research here at the University of Bath. We are a leading public policy research institute based here at the University of Bath. Uh, we conduct and enable policy-relevant research to have an impact, uh, especially by building links with the worlds of, of policymakers and practice. Um, we also raise the awareness and the understanding of the public about policy research through our public lecture series and our publication series. And we also provide a range of opportunities for development for policymakers, researchers and practitioners, uh, allowing two-way learning and original contributions to research and practice through the various schemes that we run, including the Policy Fellowship Programme, our Visiting Fellows Programme, uh, our Visiting Policy Fellows Scheme, and also the professional qualifications we offer, uh, the Doctorate in Policy Research uh, and Practice, and our Masters in Public Policy, which we offer in conjunction with the Department of Social and Policy Sciences here at the University. So that's uh, what we do here at the Institute. And I'll talk now briefly about the findings from this research project, the Loneliness in the Digital Age project, that the IPR has been a part of for the past four years. Uh, it's a multi-partner project with other universities and agencies and funded by these three uh, research councils. And it's very much looking to tackle some of the issues that we've been hearing about and that the report very much focuses on. So overall, the objectives of uh, the project were twofold, really, to understand people's experiences of situational loneliness, where our work or situations in our lives have the potential to really disrupt people's social relations and leave them feeling socially isolated. This is slightly different to traditional focus in uh, policy and research on kind of chronic um, loneliness amongst older people. We're seeing, in, and very much in, in policy circles and in public debate, focus on different areas of loneliness, different people and different generations who are affected. So the other part, as well as understanding these experiences, the other part of the project was to develop and evaluate new creative digital technologies that can try to manage the experiences of loneliness uh, by building, facilitating empathic and trustworthy connections. So the focus of the project was these four different groups, so remote or lone workers, student, first-time mothers, and informal carers. Uh, but I'm just going to give you some information about one of the projects, the Informal Carers, uh, a connected carers project that we've been involved in here uh, at the University of Bath. So the project started with some in-depth interviews with 16 carers from a range uh, of different settings, with different uh, care responsibilities, to really try and understand uh, their experiences of loneliness and social isolation. And from those interviews, what came out very strongly were these four uh, areas uh, 
where loneliness was experienced by informal carers. So uh, just to pick out, I don't, there's a lot of information on that slide and a lot of quotes, but just to give some information, this restriction and social isolation, there's limited opportunity for social interaction for the carers because their kind of boundaries of relationship with the person they're caring for are defined in such a way that it really limits uh, their opportunities for, for, for their own social needs and involvement. There's relational losses and deprivations, not only with the person who they are caring for, and often, uh, as that quote there uh, summarises from this male uh, caring for his wife, that there's loneliness even when he's with his wife, because in reality he's on his own, she's not really relating. And similarly, the restriction on their relationships with other people in the family and friends because of the all-consuming nature of the caring. There's a problem of, of the social interactions and the distancing, a feeling of loneliness uh, because other people, even family and friends and healthcare professionals, don't really understand uh, the situation that you're in. And also a loneliness accentuated uh, by a sense of powerless and, and helplessness, the fact that you are solely responsible often for caring for somebody and just the sense that nobody else can actually really help. So these were the kind of themes that were coming out from that engagement. And then with the same uh, carers, there were a series of um, design workshops, co-design workshops, to try and understand, okay, how can we design uh, and use creative digital technology to try and alleviate some of these issues? These were the areas that were being addressed and being thought about in the design. So particularly designing for talking to others, using technology that supports a, a rich dialogue, but also taking into account the fact that people can't physically meet up very often. This is a dis distributed community. And there's an asynchronicity uh, about caring responsibilities. People aren't free at the same time, so there's a kind of uh, temporal issue there. Uh, designing for belonging to a community, so people know that they're not alone, that they are valued, that they're supported. Uh, and designing for uh, temporary escape so to create a safe place where people can share their stories, share their experiences without feeling judged uh, and being able to get support from other people, as well as issues of transitioning into caring and identifying as a carer. So that, those were the design considerations, and it was very much a co-design with the carers that had been involved in the project. And this is what we, they came up with. Uh, we've actually got a prototype Chatter Radio here. You can have a, uh, look at this. It's a... Uh, digital radio-esque uh, device uh, that was given to the carers and it provides different content, a lot of the content generated by the carers themselves where they can share uh, stories, experiences, they can ask questions, they can provide answers. They can also give indications of empathy with particular stories, uh, show that they like particular stories, as well as a, uh, a news channel that would scrape the internet for news stories re relevant to carers and, and would be able to broadcast those. So that was the design. Uh, here's some people using, uh, some carers using the device. I think it's, what is important to stress is that this isn't seen as like the ultimate solution, but this is a kind of technological probe, a way of looking into how can we use creative digital technologies to try and bridge some of these issues and, and deal with the uh, loneliness experienced by this, these people in this particular context. Some people found they were able to share, found it very useful, very helpful. Also came out that some of the carers found it, even though they'd met the other carers, they still found it difficult to kind of share and respond. And there were also kind of uh, technological issues with, with this um, temporal issue that people would feel almost, if someone asks a question, they feel pressure 
to try and answer the question and that kind of in itself kind of created a, an anxiety amongst some people. So uh, these things are being fed back into the kind of co-design of the next generation of the chatter devices. So that's that project. I just want to say finally something about social media and technology and loneliness and intergenerational divides and the work that we're doing here at the University of Bath. This is obviously very much a, a policy concern and a concern in, in the public debate. So this was a, a, a headline from last year thinking about bringing back youth clubs to help lonely millennials. And the question is often asked, you know, is social media exacerbating loneliness or is it enabling connection? Something that really resonates with the report, that this is a, a double-edged sword, it's both a connector and a disconnector. And you know, the answer is, it's complicated. Okay, the research shows that um, there is this uh, uh, dual-edged sword element to it. We've got sociological research uh, looking into this, and I think this book sums it up really. It is, you know, it's complicated. Um, just to say a couple of things on the research evidence. There is evidence that in many situations and across some types of usage, social media does correlate with negative effects on well-being and, and, and mental health. Uh, different types of, of media have shown to have different effects. And amongst undergraduates, recent research has shown the kind of both positive and negative effects. And overall, the picture is quite confusing. There is correlation sometimes between social media use and, and negative well-being and mental health outcomes. But often, causation is not demonstrated. And as an economist, I always think about, you know, is this a causal relationship? Which way is the causation going? And therefore, how do we design a policy that's going to address things? So the case for social media, we've seen, and it resonates also with uh, the, the chatter device, actually we can use media to create positive social capital uh, that has real-world benefit. Uh, this, this summary from Dana Boyd says, you know, most teens aren't compelled by gadgetry, they're compelled by friendship, and the gadgets are a means to a social end. And again, this very much resonates with what we found uh, in the LEADER project, that bonds can be reinforced and nurtured and grown through digital connection, but actually it's, it's the meeting up, it's the people meeting up physically, creating a friendship and then nurturing that through technology. So it is complicated, very complicated, but the real question is how do we build the platforms that nudge people towards more positive uses in their context and their social media behaviour, and this is very much what we're interested in researching here uh, at the IPR and continuing to look at this nexus between digital technologies and dealing with loneliness and some of these divides that we've heard about today. Thank you. Uh, we've got about half an hour for the panel and I'm just going to introduce them. Uh, Matt, as you already know, is the Deputy Director of the uh, Policy Research Institute here at Bath and thank you very much for that. Um, Iva Gormley, as I mentioned in my speech, Iva, do come up, um, uh, set up Good Gym uh, so that people could combine getting fit with doing good. And I said something about um, what it is that Good Gym does. Um, and uh, Rachel Dutton, who's the head of research at the St. Monica Trust, which is a Bristol-based charity that supports older people. And you may have seen their work on Channel 4's Old People's Home for four-year-olds. So if, Rachel, um, you would um, come up. Um, and uh, perhaps I could, um, everyone, do sit down. <laughs> um, I just invite some questions from the floor um, based on what you've just heard. This is always the worst part. You go, 
Does anyone want to ask a question? No hand goes up. After the first one, everybody wants to ask a question and you don't have enough time to get everybody in. But who would like to go um, first? Look at that. Somebody's primed already with that microphone. All oh, right, OK. <laughs> Um, all right, well, let me. Uh, I will kick off for one question to either. And I suppose that, um, my question is what inspired you um, to actually set up Good Gym? What was it, you know, about what you were seeing around you that made you think that this was something that needed to happen? And then what were the challenges you found in trying to make it happen? Because as soon, I mean, one of the things I was struck by when I visited. Um, a uh, older person, younger person, coupling um, was, you know, all the kind of uh, safeguarding and yeah. data protection and all these things and officialdom that can stand in your way of trying to just do something very simple in a way to give people the ability to build a relationship. So, what, how, why did you do it, and what were the obstacles? And so, so initially, I think, like many people who, who set something up, it was a, <clears throat> it was a solution to my own problem, which was uh, I wasn't exercising. And I just didn't like that idea of going into a, a, a sweaty basement and paying loads of money to lift things that don't need lifting. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought maybe I could use that energy to achieve something a bit more useful. And so I started running to deliver the newspaper to um, an elderly neighbour, a guy called um, Terry, who was my friend's parents' ex-builder. Um, he, he used to be in the uh, parachute regiment and a, and a boxer. So he actually, you know, he, he became my, my coach. He told me I needed to run further um, and to uh, do sit-ups and press-ups and stuff as well. Um, and it became this extremely mutually beneficial relationship. He didn't see any family or friends on a regular basis. He had various um, long-term conditions that meant he didn't leave his home. Um, and we had, um, you know, he, he taught me so much about the, the, the area of, um, of, I live in, um, and in exchange, I put him, put him the uh, Sun newspaper, which was his choice of newspaper. Um, <laughs> it was, um, and it, you know, we, it, we, we became friends. Um, in, in terms of, and so, why has it taken since I started doing that? It's now, you know, it's taken ten years to get to the <laughs> stage where we're now in fifty different um, local authority areas, fourteen thousand. Um, uh, runners and, uh, and walkers having done over 140,000 sort of tasks and um, uh, providing support for older people and community projects. Um, it, it's so interesting, this thing about whether something's better as that incredible network of informal carers or you know, parents or to some extent um, you know, intergenerational volunteers. Um, it's like, it, it, if you can make those informal networks uh, work, they are in some sense so much more powerful um, than uh, organisations like mine, which because we're a, you know, a, a system and a process, we now you know, uh, criminal record checks, uh, all the safeguarding work gets expensive, it, it, it's time consuming. Um, but what I hope it starts to do is, is normalise that behaviour again and provide a format that is then again normal for uh, strangers to talk about things and then, and then become friends. And I think, I, I think what's happening um, more in, in sort of the befriending world um, is in the sort of least crude uh, way, hopefully, uh, it's becoming a little bit more like Tinder, uh, where you know, Tinder does not phone you up after your first date and just check that everything went OK and that you're happy and safeguarding-wise. I wouldn't both, know. Both <coughs> I also was post uh, 
post Tinder uh, in terms of my own. Um, the, um, but the, uh, <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? So, so it, it, what it, it, because it's a proper platform, it enables those relationships to, to flourish. And I think the direction that the world of befriending, where we are setting up those intergenerational relationships purposefully, is trying to become um, more light touch, where with still keeping that safeguarding involved, you give both an opportunity to consent to what turns into a, a real friendship that isn't monitored or supported by an organisation. Um, and so I, th I think that is hopefully the way that we will, we will be able to go. Um, why I'm so excited about this, the, the, the work of this um, report, though, is I think it, it recognises, and in, I think both of the, uh, all the speeches we've heard today, uh, recognising um, the, the contribution that older people can make. And going back to Terry, who I you know, visited, that the exciting thing from his point of view, it wasn't just, oh, poor you, I'm going to come and help you. Um, it was... How can, how can you help me? It was that sense of, of, of contribution. Um, and what's so fantastic about the, the, the care home work is it is recognising that people's ability to have agency is so important. I think we still have this idea of um, old age slightly from a sort of government's point of view or a health point of view as this sort of all-inclusive cruise um, where you're just looked after completely and it robs people of that agency, that ability to contribute to the society that is so fundamental to, to, to well-being, which I think is why our work increases well-being uh, sort of on both sides. Sorry, okay. So long. Thanks. No, and I'm just going to go to Rachel actually because um, as part of the inquiry we visited, I think, I mean, uh, the first... Uh, uh, older people's home to have a nursery located in the middle of it, or so the claim uh, is made in uh, the constituency next door to mine in, in Tooting. And it was an, an amazingly inspirational thing to watch. I actually felt quite emotional actually um, being there, watching the impact of these little preschoolers, you know, around my daughter's age, having the most incredible effect on um, some quite elderly people and you could see the the hugely positive effect of one the one group on the other mm. it was just watching people come to life and I was kind of thinking why on earth didn't we do this before why is this seen as innovative yeah. I mean we've we've kind of naturally developed growing up doing these in our families which you cease to do so much because of these segregation within families people living in different places but why weren't we doing this before I think the answer is it what we were, but but many decades ago probably, as we you know heard a lot today about uh, how things are much more segregated now. The main opportunities a lot of young people get, a lot of very young people get, or very old or older people get to interact, is with their families if they're lucky, if they live close by, otherwise there, there, there's fewer and fewer opportunities available for people because of the segregation and the way the world is, is going. Um, so people just have lost the awareness of what it's like and all, also I think have lost kind of permission in being able to actually go and sort of form relationships across generations. Um, so, yeah, we, we've found that in a lot of the work that we've been doing. I think many, many organisations and many organisations that work with any client group realise you know, that they, they have never lost touch with that. I mean, I think a lot of care homes have always had younger people come in because they can see, you know, mm. there's, there's immediate effects. But more and more in the last 20 years or so, there's this huge movement, isn't there, about 
it being, you know, real intergenerational activity where people have got mutual benefits, that they've got equal status, they're really sharing, really engaging, really developing relationships. And that kind of young and old, particularly the, the end of the spectrum, I think there's something so special about that, so powerful, because they, those groups particularly, both have quite similar needs. Mm. And they're, I think, often amazed at how similar they are, how they both need help in certain ways, and how they can help each other, and they really enjoy being able to help and support each other, but also get so much fun out mm. of being with each other. You know, this, this is just, yeah. Um, the, the Older People's Home for Four-Year-Old program that Channel 4 ran, it was a social experiment um, looking at bringing intergenerationals mm. together for a six-week period. And they, they, for the first time, used scientific instruments to measure the health and well-being of mm. older mm. people, which was really interesting and yes and it had to, um, amazing results and impacts on on viewers i think as well as our own staff and um, our own residents even though we've been working quite long term that program in itself not necessarily because it was us taking mm. part but because a lot of people saw it as well saw the programs going out it's um it, it definitely sort of has given people that permission. It's definitely raised awareness of the benefits and what people are losing losing out on. A lot of older people, perhaps, who haven't had much contact with children, think they don't want to have contact with children, and they wouldn't want to. Um, and the people that saw the programme that was filmed with us, Hamish, was, I think, one that was perhaps a bit cajoled into taking part in the programme, wasn't too sure that he was going to get anything from it and but he really ended up getting a huge amount out of it and very very much enjoyed the whole experience and i think he just wasn't aware mm. so yes it's it's, mm. it's fascinating mm -hmm. okay ah now the hands are going up and actually can i ask vera to come up on the panel as well so that um, i'm not necessarily answering all the questions on our report sorry uh, come up to the panel there's a chair go for it I noticed that there uh, isn't a young person on the panel today, but I wanted to um, find out a little bit more. How dare <laughs> No offence to you all. Um, I wanted to just find out a little bit more about how young people's voices were heard and platformed in the process of writing this report, both those young people who are already involved in organisations that do that cross-generational work, but also um, young people that aren't yet involved in that way and yeah how that informed the process of writing the report so when we launched the report and um, we weren't very circumscribed to start off with on the terms of reference because we uh, as I said what brought us to the topic was as Vera described what we saw coming off the back of Brexit and it, it, and to be honest we looked at it quite politically mm. through the prism of Brexit and the general election that had gone before um, but we then held an event in one of the committee rooms in the House of Commons um, where, where, where the care families helped us with, actually, which brought together a whole load of um, younger people and older people. And we took, if you like, evidence from them on what the kinds of issues were that they mm. thought that we should be looking at. And then we used that to inform the terms of reference of the report. And then secondly, when we did the visits, obviously... Um, I'm not saying that we like, took statements like police doing a witness interview <laughs> from everybody that we spoke to, um, but the younger people who were engaged with the projects 
Of course, we spoke um, to them and took evidence uh, from them and the challenge who we owe a huge debt of gratitude for being the Secretariat um, to the APPG took a lot of details down as well. I mean, obviously, with the preschoolers, they weren't necessarily in a position to give us <laughs> evidence on their, on their experience, but we've, we've tried as much as possible to have the, the, the evidence and the kind of content led by what is happening outside of Westminster, mm. um, not necessarily you know, grand evidence sessions yeah. in. I mean, I don't know if Vera wants to add anything to that. I, I mean, you, you, you're touching on something that I think I, I, I said before, is that um, older people engage in a slightly different way. And so you can have meetings, and that might be dominated by older people, but then you have got sort of online um, so questionnaires or services or uh, surveys also, and that's where where the younger people get involved. And um, and in the end, how you put the two things together. And I I, I listened very carefully about um, what Matt said earlier about um, uh, the, the the carers. I I just actually want to say we've got a carer centre in in Bath, um, and 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 I wonder whether you you engage with them because that's people in a room where you're talking about a gadget and how we we get people in the room. Um, and the people who are using gadgets and the gadgets together, I think, is one of the big challenges that we have. Mm. Mm. Thank you. And the other thing I should just say about that, actually, I, I should have said, we've, of course, polled younger people as well for their views mm. on, yeah. on, these, on these things. Um, uh, there's a lady next to you, and then did you want to ask a question too? So I'll, I'll kind of go from right to left. Is that me? That's you, yes. Okay. You're on the Hi. right. Yeah. Thanks very much. Not, uh, I don't know what your politics <laughs> <laughs> um, Leda Blackwood from the Department of Psychology. Um, I was just wondering, I mean, that you're describing a, a generational divide, um, and what you've been talking about are things like technology um, and, you know, changes in the ways in which people are living and so on. But I just wanted to know whether or not you could say more about um, your explanations for it and also the degree to which things like austerity and changes um, in people's kind of like economic um, circumstances might be associated with it because I'm, I'm assuming that you know these uh, this divide isn't present everywhere um, that there are perhaps pockets of it and so on and I guess I'm asking partly from the perspective of a researcher to try to think about well what would you think would be the most important thing for researchers to be thinking about and looking at in terms of this issue okay and we'll take the the one on the left as well thank you uh, my question's uh, quite a mundane question is there any uh, plans for a, a an advice source for people that actually want to get initiatives off the ground you were talking about your good gym and the hurdles, you know, the horrors of actually getting an initiative off the ground, but you have to go through all those data protection, um, whatever it is, is, you know, I don't even know, is it CRB these days? Uh, whatever, all the checks. Is there, is there a source of information? Because there are, there are an awful lot of people, my kind of age, who've probably got a good 10 years in them, who would love to do set up some initiatives in their town but but they'll fall you know they will stumble probably quite quickly at the early hurdles but if there was an advice source it could make quite a difference right okay um uh, i'm going to go to uh, matt on the issue of the evidence base uh in relation to technology um vera and i will say something about um the the part of the first question about what is the 
area that we think researchers could look more into and the extent of the impact of austerity. Um, Ivor, if you want to just say something about that last question um, uh, and the, the hurdles, and um, Rachel, if you could just say something about um, where people could get advice if they want to, um, if they want to start up a project. Um, Matt, uh, shall I start with you? Yes. Yeah, sure. So, in terms of the evidence base for technology and technological um, interventions to try and address loneliness, I mean, I can talk about what we've been doing here at the University of Bath, and that's part of a wider project. And the aim of the whole project with our university partners was to look at these ways in which different digital technologies, and that is, you know, it's ongoing. Uh, we're actually looking for more funding, actually, if anyone um, was interested in, for the second generation of the uh, Chatter radios to try and uh, develop those and, and use some of the feedback that we got to make them uh, more suited. Uh, for the task we want. But I'd, I'd say it's, it's in its infancy in terms of clear um, research evidence because, as I say, a lot of, as I mentioned, the evidence, we find a lot of correlations between things, between technology and changes in well-being and things like this, but it's actually, you know, it's very difficult to um, find that causal connection which then allows you to make uh, policy on the basis of okay. something more sound. So um, it's, it's ongoing, it's a kind of watch this space. Bath is where we are doing a lot of research on uh, digital innovation for tackling loneliness and things like that. So it's, it's, okay. it, it's a watch this space. The one area that I think would be really useful to be researched more is the impact of property prices and housing. There is absolutely no doubt that that is having a massive impact on this divide. I, I just look in my own constituency. The average salary in my constituency is around 36 to 37,000. The average property price is 400,000. Um, and so to buy a home is very, very challenging. And what you increasingly see in areas like mine, and I, I represent a constituency in a South London borough, is that you've got older people who obviously own their property in Streatham for a long time, who are still obviously in their homes and will be there till they die. But if you're trying to bring up a young family and you want space, and a garden, there is absolutely no way you could buy a home with space and a you know sufficient garden. You would have to move out um, much further out towards the suburban parts of my constituency and beyond that out of London to be able to get somewhere appropriate. And so increasingly in London, you're seeing a net outflow, I think, of 35 to 44-year-olds, which kind of correlates with what I said in my speech of people leaving London, coming to places like Bath. I mean, Vera will say something about how the what's happening here on, the, on that front. And younger people like students, um, because it, it, the rent is cheaper in my part of London, the students in London will come and live in my area. And so increasingly, you've got, we are one of the youngest boroughs, but we've also got older people um, as well, and a real hollowing out of middle-aged people, which I've kind of become myself, I suppose. Um, so so that, 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 that area and the, the property prices and housing is an area that definitely needs to be looked at more because I think it's driving a lot of this. And one of the evidence sessions that we had, I, I, off the top of my head, I think we had the IPPR 
and another organisation who spoke more to that. But that, that's definitely a, an, an area that you could look into. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, d I don't want to repeat what you've just been saying. I mean, the housing crisis is um, at the bottom of a lot of ills, not just um, um, the intergenerational uh, problems that we face. And we absolutely need to look at the whole thing um, for, for many other reasons. I just wanted to say one other thing that um, um, uh, uh, is also something I think one, one needs to sort of put some research into, and that is the, the, the issue of stigma and loneliness. Um, I don't think we have mentioned that we've definitely discussed it in, um, in, in our APPG, but um, I can't remember in which part of the report we sort of re referred to it. But um, also in other areas, when, when, when I think about what isolates people, and again, um, in, 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 uh, in your slides there was something about young mothers and loneliness. Um, and um, I'm doing one other APPG that really interests me, and that's um, the one on um, adverse childhood experiences, and we're looking in, in perinatal mental health, um, that young mothers often feel very depressed, but they don't like to talk about it. So this is another thing. So, 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 so we have divides in our society and communities that, that have a lot to do with stigma, um, and old people... Um, particularly are from a generation where you, you, you didn't talk about certain things. And I, I think breaking down stigma and why it exists and how we can break down stigma is a very big area of research. Okay. And just on um, uh, how do you get over, if you um, want to set up an uh, uh, initiative like yours, um, where will people go to for advice on that, and how would they get over some of the hurdles? It's, yeah, I, I think I suppose um, you know, starting small uh, is is brilliant because then you don't have those things. If you're operating as an individual, you can make something happen yourself, and that's the, that that's the brilliant thing about at, at that when it, when it is at that sort of idea stage, you can just do something like me running to running to Terry. There weren't barriers because I wasn't trying to do something bigger. So I suppose that's my first bit of advice: is just try doing what you want to do and work out the smallest scale way that you can make a difference and that might be and then you really learn about what you want to do on a bigger scale um, and I think it generally takes a while before you know that an idea for a project sort of works um, and then the other my other bit of advice would be just try to collaborate as much as you as much as you can probably someone has got a similar similar idea and might have gone through through the same process there are so many brilliant organizations out there and there are also brilliant other models that you might be able to borrow um, or, or, or copy that can help you sort of step over some of those things um, in, in terms of the support that's available I mean there, there are various sort of um, you know innovation and sort of funders um, but my general advice I suppose would be to just do it first and do as much as you can. So anyway, even if you want to set up an organisation, you'll probably want to be involving as least amount of money possible um, just to be able to, 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 to keep it going. And because I think it's a wonderful way to want, run something that aims to um, you know, bring people together, um, money might not be the most important thing you need at the beginning. Rachel, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, there's, um, there's just loads and loads of wonderful projects out there and initiatives that have been running for years and years and years, uh, many in the States, many in this country, other parts of the world as well. Um, Massachusetts have got a, an organisation called Bridges Together that pool a lot of information and put out fact sheets and how-to sorts of things, generations working together, um, and the Beth Johnson Foundation, which is now something similar to that, if not that. Titles all sound quite similar, but um, 
We also, as part of some work that I did doing a literature review last year, put together an intergenerational activity guide. And a lot, we've had quite a bit of feedback saying that this has been really useful. It's, it's very sort of practical. Um, it draws together lots of things in the research on what's shown to have been effective in how you should approach things. And it doesn't go into the nitty gritty about getting permissions and all that sort of thing, but I'm sure there are resources out there. It, there are some resources that are listed on the back of that which might be useful. I have got copies here. You can download it from our website as well. Okay. Um, and I'll take the last round of questions because we've got about five minutes left. And so I'll take all four. Um, so I'll go one, two, three, four. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to kind of pick up on uh, Chuka's points. You very rightly said intergenerational issues, especially things like kind of um, care homes collaborating with nurseries, collaborating with schools, it can often, from, even from policymakers, provoke quite an emotional response and kind of a sense of this is common sense. Why aren't we doing this already? Um, and, you know, as we may know, unfortunately, you know, government, local government funding bodies aren't always making decisions based on common sense and what is kind of obviously something no. we should be doing. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I really welcome, you know, things like this report that are trying to build up that evidence base so that you can actually present outcomes and say that this makes sense from a policy perspective. What do you think, what does the panel think the next steps are in that and how can we better build uh, an evidence base that is robust and kind of not not too reliant on anecdotal or kind of small case studies and really kind of put forward that case um, okay. on, a, on a wider level. Uh, where was number two? Number two is... <clears throat> yes. Um, I would sort of like to throw in Brexit, if I may. Um, and there's a lot to say about Brexit, but in terms of intergenerational connections, to me it seems that a very uh, disturbing message has been given to the younger generation. Uh, and the message is, well, turn your back to Europe. And <clears throat> the younger generation may not want to do that. Um, Europe uh, provides lots of opportunities in terms of travel, studying, um, uh, inter you know, relationships. Whatever Brexit will bring, my question is to the to politicians, um, what can be what can politicians do to answer that question, to heal that generational um, wound, if I may call it that way? Okay, that's a very good question. Number three, I think the gentleman with the white shirt. Thank you. Uh, it's great that you've chosen to launch this report uh, in a university because it's stimulating some thoughts for us and we've heard a little bit about how uh, university researchers might contribute to this um, agenda. but. Um, we are a, a, an institution that is supposed to develop citizens for the future. We're supposed to influence people's character. So I wonder how you think that universities and educational institutions could contribute in various ways. Okay. And then finally, Roger. Thank you. Um, I'm Roger Driver, Rector of St. Michael's in the middle of the city. I'm also on the steering group of um, uh, the 3SG, the voluntary community sector. I guess, um, as I'm sitting listening to this, it, there's, um, there's tensions and frustrations um, in that um, I, I worked in Liverpool for 24 years, three years here, that um, local authority, when an elected member is elected and they go in with enthusiasm, 
you know, wanting to change communities, and then they find out significant part of their budget statutory has to be spent on looked after children and care for the elderly, quite rightly. That puts then a squeeze, less money to spend and to put into the voluntary community sector. And then you see a withdrawal of uh, amazing schemes and things. And I, I think back over, I sound really old, but uh, 29 years of work in the community. So you think of things like Sure Start, Healthy Living Centres, um, regeneration initiatives about trying to get health, education, uh, the making of place altogether. But they sort of all, all bite the dust in relation to uh, the squeeze on spending and funding. And I, and I just wonder, I haven't read this report, but you know, did you discuss it and is any light uh, um, to, to lead? Where, how can funding be different? Okay, very good question. All right, so the first question from um, Tom from Independent Age about the next state steps in creating a solid evidence base. Um, I think I'll pass to Rachel. The question about Brexit um, and, uh, <laughs> and um, uh, the, the failure there, actually, um, in terms of delivering for younger generations. Uh, Vera, uh, uh, how can educational institutions help? Matt. And then, uh, Roger, I'll address your question. And I'll, I'll bring Ivor in um, also on uh, the um, how you know how the educational institutions can help as well. Um, Rach, do you want to take the first question? All right. <laughs> um, there is a huge amount of evidence out there already. There's some brilliant studies being done. There's a, as you said, there's a lot of anecdotal information. There's a lot of evaluation studies. There's some very robust studies that have been carried out, not mainly on a large scale, which is a big problem. But we have come a long way. We do know generally what the benefits are and what the downsides can be and what you need to look out for, what you need to be careful of, how you should approach things in order for them to, to work well and be most effective and not be harmful for any of the participants, all that sort of thing. But I think obviously the next steps are what works for what sorts of people and what sorts of circumstances, that's where there isn't you know, much evidence. So we need a lot more collaboration in that, where we can get sites, groups, different sectors sort of working together. I'm involved in an intergenerational research group that's involving universities across the UK and the Apples and Honey Nursery near where you are. That's right. um, in fact, they're one of the leading members of that. And we're looking at doing a multi-site um, evaluation of our own nursery uh, and old people's home work. So yes, it's building up these bigger studies. Mm -hmm. Funding is difficult. Um, obviously, yes, there's a, lot, there's a lot of issues there, but it, it is needed. OK. Um, On Brexit, yeah. Yeah, just one last thing. It's about economically, we should look at the enormous resource that older people with time have. Time is a very, very um, important um, asset, um, and we are not making the most of it. And I'm sure research should look into into that sort of thing. Um, but yes, on, on Brexit, um, 
we, we can't rehearse all the Brexit arguments in this room today in two minutes. Um, but I would say if we can do something inter intergenerationally, and you, you asked me about politicians, obviously the first thing I'd say is do not speak the language of hate. Um, and that was obviously one of, one of the biggest things um, in, in this um, Brexit debate that was... Um, uh, the, the problem, but, but sometimes the language of hate is a little bit too much for saying that older people have got a slightly different understanding of history and where, where we as a country stand. And I have also learned to, to listen to older people who um, feel that this country was in a, in a different place 50 years ago and why they feel the way they do and if young people actually listen to that and not just sort of think, oh, these old people are begotten and they are full of hate, but they have a different you know, understanding of who they were as British people compared to, let's say, German Nazis, um, then maybe um, younger people understand a little bit better where the history of the country has brought people who are now in their 70s or so got them to? Do you understand what I mean? I, I have understood that Britain is a different country from Germany and I come from Germany and people have different emotional responses to how they feel um, uh, and, 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 and that needs to be understood as well and bro broken down event eventually if necessary but I think understanding helps. Okay. Uh, educational institutions, Matt, how can you guys help? <clears throat> yeah, I think that chimes with um, what educational institutions can be doing. As you say, we are we're here to educate people in specific programs, but also to educate citizens for this country. And part of that, I think, is uh, we teach them and we put high value on critical thinking and engaging with arguments. But I think we also need to kind of put more emphasis, potentially, on actually getting into the debates and, and trying to you know, cross from your mountain to the other side to engage with the other views, and whether that's over a generation or over a different political divide, but to actually um, teach our students to kind of put themselves more in the other people's shoes and, and uh, engage in that way. So I think that's something that we can build into our uh, curricula. I think ideas of linking up uh, students with local organisations, the sorts of things that are going on, just enabling uh, people to get involved in things that, you know, I don't know if students know about the local organisations that need volunteers that opportunities that there are, but perhaps something through uh, one of student services that could be uh, linking up students with, uh, whether it is intergenerationally or just with other volunteering opportunities in the okay. uh, community, and just trying to yeah, integrate that, be a bit more intentional. I think, um, as Jekyll was saying at the beginning, the laissez-faire is not going to deal with the, the situation that we have, so as a university, maybe we need to think a bit more intentionally about how we can... Um, contribute in these areas. Thank you. And are you are you working with a lot of universities on this stuff? I think we do have quite a few um, Bath University students who um, who who run with us. And yeah, my, my, my short answer to have uh, what should you do is everyone, uh, all staff and students at Bath universities are definitely getting involved in good year. And I mean, seriously, <laughs> it would it's very likely to increase everyone's well-being. Uh, should help with concentration on on work also and generate amazing connections between um, people who are potentially only here for here for a few years we'll get a, you know they'll connect with community projects and older people who've been here for, for, for longer mm -hmm. years will get a fantastic exchange of, of, of information in both directions there are obviously uh, lots of other wonderful um, opportunities mm -hmm. too but I'd also be thinking I suppose as an institution what what extra resources uh, do you need 
uh, what are the gaps in your uh, knowledge that potentially an older generation who are, uh, could help help you with? How could you set up something specifically that would be, you know, yeah, using their knowledge? Exactly. You know, a few people have said today that you could, you could bring that local older knowledge um, into the organisation. Okay. Um, I'm just going to uh, say a couple of things about some of those questions before I invite you all to use the Metameter tool. I'm going to pretend that I know how this all works. But basically, um, in, a f in a couple of minutes, I'm going to ask you to answer a few questions by using um, this uh, tool. Um, and you will be directed by instructions which will appear magically behind me very shortly. But I'm just, while Dell is sorting that out, I'm just going to uh, say two things. On Brexit, I fundamentally believe if we were more integrated, the chances of that having happened would have massively reduced. Um, they, uh, I think when they had the referendum on whether to permit same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships in Ireland, they had a huge campaign where they invited uh, people's grandchildren to lobby and send postcards and other things to their grandparents asking them to vote to legalise same-sex relationships and, and marriage. And I think it was a massive failure um, of the Remain campaign of which I was a part of engaging young people and getting them to interact with their parents and grandparents on this particular issue. Um, because essentially you have a generation of older people who are not going to have to live with the consequences of what they voted for and are imposing on the younger people in their families. And that, you know, one of the, 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 the criticisms of the Remain campaign is it didn't engage emotionally enough and it was too fact and data driven. And there's nothing more emotional than your grandchild telling you, look, why are you doing this to me? Um, um, in fact, the, one of my best friends, um, uh, best man at my wedding, he got married a month before me and his father came to that wedding and it was just before the EU referendum. Um, totally Eurosceptic, buying all the nonsense, of course I'd call it that, that the Vote Leave campaign was selling, but actually voted to remain because all of our friends who he spoke to about that issue, and even at weddings people were talking about Brexit for God's sake, um, uh, were saying that they wanted to stay in the European Union because of the opportunities, and he said he felt too much guilt in doing what they didn't want. On the funding point, austerity undoubtedly has an impact on whether or not people can move from the laissez-faire approach to a more um, determinative approach and active approach. I do think we need statutory duties on local authorities to promote integration. But the big problem here on funding is the way the Treasury works. The Treasury always values stuff by what it can put a price on. If you invest in this type of thing, it saves the Treasury infinite amounts of money um, because older people are getting better care, they um, are not necessarily having to revert to the NHS so much. And likewise, if you actually had younger people spending more time with older people and taking their guidance, I tell you, in my community, unfortunately, we have a small minority of young people shooting and stabbing each other. You could bet your bottom dollar if they had more of a presence of an older figure in their lives, providing them with guidance, we wouldn't have all the fallout from that, which is incredibly costly, never mind tragic. And so unless the Treasury changes the way it thinks about public spending, so it's not purely focused on the bottom line of what you spend now, but is also much better at quantifying how much money will be saved in the future by investing in these projects now, 
we're not going to get the step change that is needed. And so I, I fundamentally believe that to be the case. Um, and uh, I, from Vera and I, just wanted to say a massive thank you again to the challenge for underpinning the work that we, um, we do. It's much appreciated. Um, to Matt, Iva and Rachel, thank you very much for joining the panel. And um, this is the first part of the inquiry. It's an interim report. And um, once we've got all these elections and by-elections and God, God knows what else out of the way, um, uh, we will be resuming this inquiry. And uh, if you visit our website, you'll be able to see what the next stages of that will be. But thank you very much all for coming. Brilliant discussion. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.